My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to America. I'll be one of my friends. I'm just trying to make some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate, teach you, get you to be a great manager of your own money. So call me, 1-800-743-CBC, or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Sometimes it feels like nothing works. Valuation, no. Sentiment, no. Earnings, no. And when you get that feeling, you know what you have to do? You have to buy, buy, buy. Buy stocks. Not sell them. Because it's almost never as bad as it seems. Witness today where the averages plunge before turning around later in the day with the Dow ultimately finishing up 99 after being down more than 1,100 points. That's me advancing 0.28% after being down hideously. And then the Nasdaq gaining 0.63% from an incredible low. All right, now it wasn't as stunning as an 18-second Chiefs victory march. It was a phenomenal comeback, though, and one that might have staying power because a lot of people who couldn't take pain any longer are now out of the building. At the bottom today, the sellers weren't just afraid of the bear. They were afraid of a recession. The market goes down endlessly when there are recession worries, but it almost always overshoots. The proprietary oscillator that I follow from the S&P hit minus seven today, which is a level where you have to hold your nose and buy something because we almost always get an oversold bounce from that level. In challenging times like this, I rely on both my own history of giving up at the bottom three decades ago, as well as relying on the S&P 500 oscillators I did this very morning on my morning meeting program with Jeff Marks, proprietary to club members, that would have had you do this as we sure did with abandon right at the bottom. The reason why I am in, inclined to want to buy is that I don't think we're in a recession. Now, people want to sell right here. And the reason why they want to sell right here is that they want to get rid of the pain. OK, now getting rid of pain is an emotional issue. I've gotten rid of pain in Confessions of a Street Act. You can read a moment where I got rid of pain and how wrong it was. So what you have to do is the opposite, the opposite of pain, which means you have to do some buying. And we did and did, and did, and did. Now, in recent years, we've had three recession scares. The February 2018 massacre, when stupid VIX options traders made us feel like we were headed for a crash. The late 2018 Jay Powell massacre, when a new Fed chief glibly talked about lockstep rate hikes. And the dawn of the COVID pandemic in early 2020. Each scare seemed unfathomably dangerous at the time, just like today. It's never easy to put in a buy order and be down a dollar by the time you get the report, especially when you're playing with an open hand, as we do for the CNBC Investing Club. But that's what happened at noon today. We look like idiots for a half hour. Geniuses at the bell. You had to anticipate the bottom because they can happen in the blink of an eye, like we saw today. The sellers ran out of firepower. We got a classic crescendo bottom, also known as a selling climax. Right now, some investors have an unshakable belief that when Fed Chief Powell speaks on Wednesday, he'll take a much harder line than we've seen before because inflation is so out of control. They think he'll use harsh words that will more than justify the recent sell-off. Of course, you also have to factor in Ukraine. Yes, that's a tough situation. The futures were looking up last night, right before President Biden told our diplomats to evacuate the families, which sure makes it sound like a war could be on the cards. Uh, more on Ukraine later. 
But make no mistake, this market is gripped by the fear that Jay Powell wants his economy to slow down in order to break the inflationary spiral, and he will do that, and it will hurt a lot of our businesses. So why not just sell here if you really like the, you know, if you really want them, you buy them back, right? You buy them back after Powell speaks. Maybe the next day. Maybe the end of Wednesday. Well, that's what many, many managers did today in the morning. They dumped, they dumped, they dumped, they capitulated, hoping to be able to buy it back Wednesday. At the time, it seemed like a very rational approach. But since when is stock market rational? For example, this market at its ugliest factored in a tremendous amount of fear that could only be handled by those with ice water in their veins, regular Patrick Mahone types, or those with a plan. The Andy Reid types who diagram ahead know they need what they need to do and know they need to buy when stocks hit the right levels on the way down. That's a form of discipline. It's a discipline for me. It's worked in practically every downturn except the Great Recession. It certainly worked well today. So you have to ask yourself, are we really looking at a second Great Recession here or simply a garden variety Fed-induced downturn? I don't think Jay Powell will destroy the economy in order to save it. I want to give him some credit here because he's learned a lot in his last four years on the job. I doubt he'll repeat the mistake he made in 2018. We know Powell has changed his philosophy since then. He's a lot more accommodative. So why don't the inflation needs to see that? Again, there's a fear factor. People don't want to wait for Powell to blow us all up because the companies that are reporting could do it for us. You don't get a stock like 3M going down to the point where it yields a 3.5% a nice chunk of change, unless Wall Street thinks they're going to cut numbers. You don't see Microsoft falling as far from its highs as did midday, unless they're going to have a miserable quarter. At least that's what the bears thought until the close. My sense on earnings is a lot more positive. We've already seen some great numbers from Procter & Gamble, from Bank of America, from a host of regional banks, and just tonight, IBM. In fact, only Netflix and J.P. Morgan have truly disappointed in a big way. I just don't see earnings collapsing at all. Maybe I'm irrationally bullish, but I prefer to think of it as being disciplined and opportunistic. The same kind of discipline that had my travel trust sell DuPont much, much higher simply because the stock had run much and I wanted to be able to not be greedy and cash out. The same discipline that told me to buy the oils when everybody else figured that rally was over. But discipline is hard. It, it takes guts to step up and buy something when it feels like the sky is falling or sell somebody something when everybody loves it. Discipline is why I told you to sell GameStop at 400 a year ago, something that's earned me the, what could be the enemy of a lifetime, which, of course, I actually enjoy because I'm a masochist because it was the perfect time. It's why I keep warning you to steer clear of nearly every one of the 600-odd companies, SPACs, that came public last year. I have nothing good to say about them. Oh, sure, the Bulls had some props today. This morning, two buyers surfaced to acquire a boring old chain like Kohl's after one hedge fund manager took a stake in and suggested a change of a board of directors. The housing stocks rallied after being down 24% on Friday. But in a typical recession, they dropped more than 30%. But that was a pretty good showing. The retailers put on a good show, too, unlike what should have happened if we were going to recession, right? You don't get Home Depot nearly 15 bucks if the economy's about to roll over. The most bullish thing that happened today, the big cap tech stocks that let us down, like Adobe and ServiceNow, are running at a very good clip. Both up more than 3% today, ServiceNow reports this week. I don't want to be fooled because the same thing happened last week, but it feels a lot better. Finally, let me introduce you to one more concept that I mentioned earlier. It's called the crescendo. And that's when we get total capitulation, as represented by nine stocks down for every one stock up. A crescendo is a terrific buy signal because this is when everybody who was going to sell finally exits the building, that cowards. The selling climax occurred just when the Dow was down 1,100 points, and it was like people dumping stock, because they, and then they just ran out of stock to sell. 
They were so scared they had sold everything. At the bottom today, I could argue that we had a real crescendo of selling, and we might have a rally followed by a retest of that crescendo that will hold. Almost every fast bottom, meaning one that's not drawn out like 2009, comes replete with a crescendo. In this midday collapse of the Dow down more than 1,100, wow, it sure felt like it. Crescendos occur when the pain is so great that no one can handle the pressure and there's an overwhelming sense that you'll be crushed if you stay in the market, which is why I showed you that video, because that is what the CNBC Investing Club is about and why you should be in it. We haven't seen one of these crescendos since 2020 because dip buyers kept, making them, uh, kept them from happening. They represent much more of an exhaustion bottom. The sellers have exhausted themselves, not the buyers being opportunistic like a dip buy. That may be exactly what happened today. Again, these kinds of bottoms tend to be revisited as the S&P has now fallen 10% from its highs. And those who bought at the lows today will scalp their gains between 10 and 11 tomorrow. But the bottom line, if you put in today's weakness, as I've been telling you to do and show you time stamp for club members only, if you bought into what you're like the crescendo of selling, then I think you'll end up being happy with your decision. And I think you'll be positively surprised on Wednesday when we find out that Jay Powell knows how to handle himself in a crisis. Doc in New York. Doc. Hey, Jimmy Chunga, the hardest working man for the people. How are you, sir? I am trying. I'm working. I worked all weekend except for when the games run. Now I'm back working tonight. What's going on? Well, I want to get your take on a company that I loved. Last month, they announced a $250 million accelerated buyback program. They are the champions of the shop-at-home catalog. Technically broke out of a downward triangle, bullish divergence on the RSI, VSCO, a.k.a. Victoria's Secret. Tell me you love the future of this company as much as I do. Doc, I really do. I think you've nailed it. I like Bath and Body Works, too. This was a terrific buy by you, and I can't believe that you got it, and I congratulate you. I think you're going to make a lot of money. Now, Ed, thank you for the chill comments. Let's go to Jeff in California. Jeff. Hey, Jimmy Chill. What you think of that roller coaster ride today, man? Minus 1,100 on the Dow and ends up green, baby. Well, down at 1,100, what happened is a lot of people jumped off the roller coaster. I prefer to complete it and then actually take it higher again. But what can you do? Absolutely, man. What can you do? A, I mean, there's a lot of people like run. to jump off at the top. I, I, it's painful, too. What's up? Hey, I went online and I checked several sources concerning the company named Cloudflare, such as TipRank, Zach, and MarketBeat. All of them are stating that Cloudflare Net is a strong buy right now. All are calling it a high-flying momentum stock. Most of the analysts were raving about the strength of this company, Net, or Cloudflare. Right, right. Jim, Jim, I'm extremely concerned because Cloudflare, like most of the stocks, has fallen 41% in a month. So question, is it a buy, sell, or hold? Okay, it's, you know, I happen to think Matt Prince is terrific, and I think their business is on fire. But I'm only recommending stocks right now that are making money because we got so many problems on our hands. The one thing I don't want to put you into is a company that can't make money. But I thank you for the kind comments. If you bought into today's weakness, as I advise, I think you're going to end up being pretty happy. Oh, man, buddy, tell you, last month, CNBC revealed its next generation 50 index, putting the company's millennials, though, and luck into focus. But with the change of tune in the market that I just talked about, could winners prevail within the list? I'm going to give you my top 10 from the index. Then crypto has crumbled along with the broader market. But what happens if it's at the bottom? I'm going to go off the charts to find out. I think you'll like it. And Flexport has its finger on the pulse of the port situation throughout the country. And I'm getting a, a read on the state of the industry with the CEO. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. 
Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. What are the stocks I'm most worried about after this amazing comeback? Which are the ones that need to be sold into the strength of a second day that I expect? Sadly, the ones that have to go off and have the backing of the youngest cohort, known as the CNBC Next Generation 50. The list is chock-a-block with securities, not, not just stocks, but securities like Ethereum and Bitcoin, even if their proponents like to describe them as currencies. And yes, according to SEC Chairman Gary Gensler, on our show, these are all securities, even the squirrely Dogecoin. I try to address stocks in this index endlessly, and not just because I had a hand in choosing the members. It's also because many of these stocks have to be booted into any further rally. Why? Well, you've heard me say it, but it's worth doing it again, because unfortunately, late November, the Federal Reserve decided to crack down on inflation. And as I've been saying over and over, many of these stocks in the next generation 50 suddenly went out of style in the Wall Street fashion show. They need the Fed to greenlight. Since then, this group is littered with losers, many of which have to be sold. But I dove into this weekend to identify some that might be worth buying, and I identified a few. Now, first, let me just tell you my criteria. I'm only interested in companies that can turn a profit this year because everything else is hated. I also eliminated the obvious. You don't need me to tell you about Alphabet or Apple or Tesla or Chipotle. By the way, we own the first two for the charitable trust. On top of that, I booted any company that's expected to have a down year or sells at an astronomical price to earnings multiple, not just price to sales. I have no interest in those. You know what? That leaves just 10 companies. 10 companies out of CNBC's Next Generation 50. 10 that have value using the investing club criteria that I like to follow, which I refuse to deviate from because it's treacherous out there if you don't have any discipline and the investing club's about discipline. My favorite, my number one, is Palo Alto Networks. Yes, the king of cybersecurity. It's a stock that showed its true colors when it exploded higher today. It was among the first 10 stocks in this market to turn after the crescendo that I keep talking about. When Steve Nikesh Aurora took over a few years ago, Palo Alto was considered way too centered around what's known as on-premise software, meaning they neglected the cloud. Since then, after a series of acquisitions, they've become the number one cybersecurity player in both on-premises, meaning the main building, and the cloud, which is also great for the work-from-home people. In a world where more and more people are working remotely, businesses need Palo Alto Protector or their overextended networks. This is real, okay? This. My second favorite in the next generation, 50 Index, I like Airbnb for the reasons I mentioned last week. It's been a winner during the pandemic with real staying power because renting a place on Airbnb is safer and cheaper than staying in a hotel. This is one of those companies that's really a technical one, okay, which is why it's so much easier to use. Their platform is so good. It's better than the competition. Airbnb software is its strength, not just the list of rental properties. It's the software that makes it proprietary, easy for both sides. Nobody's going to stop these guys. And it will be, make plenty of money this year, not just because CEO Brian Chesky has decided to stay in a, in a new one every couple of weeks. I like that guy. Third, 
You now have my blessing to buy DoorDash because it turned out that like Airbnb, DoorDash has taken permanent market share since the start of the pandemic. I think people have learned that they like getting food delivered more than they realized. It's cheaper, by the way, because you can buy the liquor at home. And COVID has given you a permanent increase in the number of available options as restaurants had to adapt or die. Don't take it from me. Take it from the receipts of Bar San Miguel. That's my small plate Mexican place in Brooklyn. We want people to come into our bar. We make all our money on Pacifico, for heaven's sake, or, or Mezcal. As to all the purveyors who serve alcohol. But we're resigned to the success of DoorDash and grateful, as are many other restaurateurs in Brooklyn, that they actually gave us a break. They did. They said, small restaurants, we're going to help you. Okay, number four is controversial because it just keeps going down. And it's about to go higher. And that's Etsy, another Brooklyn-based company. A couple of months ago, Etsy was at $307. Now it's been cut in half, falling to 154 thanks to the sell-off and high-flying growth stocks. Kind of like PayPal, more than that in a million. Etsy's been punished because investors have decided that their business is too linked to the pandemic. Once we get through this horrific Omicron stretch, the sellers are convinced that the people who create and sell product on Etsy will go back to work at regular jobs. The great re, I don't know, hiring. The kind that gives you health insurance. I think this is the same thing that's ailing Shopify, but in... in, in the end, I doubt that will be enough to derail the story, nor do I feel that the news about Shopify and what it's doing with uh, fulfillment is necessarily the death now of Shopify, but that's not my point here. Fifth is PayPal. Now, PayPal, my travel trust owns PayPal, and I'm going to just do a little remonstration for a moment because I like Dan Schulman. You wake up in the middle of the night, do you think about Mahomes? Do you think about Allen? Do you think about Jimmy G? You think about how stupid you were to buy PayPal. It's become a caricature of this decline. It's a stock that sold north of 50 times earnings before the fintech class. What was I thinking? Now it seems destined to trade down to the same price earnings level as the big banks. Maybe 10 times earnings, even though it's growing at a 20% clip. Okay, maybe 18% this quarter. In truth, when you see a stock get hammered like this, it means either the growth is going to slow much worse than the analysts expect, or the sellers are just dead wrong. And you need to buy it in a weakness. Well, guess what we did for the charitable trust? The haters who used to love PayPal now think it's going to 130. We bought some. What can I say? Wrong. High. I think righter. Lower. All right, six is one that a lot of people just keep missing. That's Crocs, okay? Now, if Crocs hadn't spent $2.5 billion on Hey Dude, You Bought a Dell. Oh, no, I'm sorry. It's just Hey Dude, another shoe company. It would have been my first picker. But there are simply too many shoe companies, and Crocs didn't need to make this acquisition. Now, it'll be watched for its integration, for its competitive edge against a bunch of shoe competitors that have come public, like Allbirds, ones that already have lost the enthusiasm in the stock market and, frankly, shouldn't have come public, but managed to pimp some, I mean, managed to be able to make some money. Number seven. Oh, boy, this one is a short squeeze. Upstart. The financial technology company allows lenders to assess borrowers better than your FICO score. The market's turned against Upstart with a vengeance, and the stock has been obliterated. I'm a big believer in their technology, but uh, I've been telling you to be careful with this one because financial technology is toxic right now. Some smart company will buy Upstart if it stays down here, though. Yes, these are two that I'm really going against the grain on. This is against the grain because it's linked to the now hated Shopify. The others... Well, some people think this is just entirely uh, pandemic. That's definitely wrong. I don't have a negative on this one. That's why I listed it first. Okay, now let's go to eighth. Eighth is one. I mean, so many people call in on the lightning round. They want to know about solar. They want to know about batteries. They want to know how to make money. Okay, Enphase. Enphase, the solar power stock. 
This market turned against solar because there was so much garbage pumped out by the investment bankers and the SPAC orchestrators that the good ones got lost in a sea of junk. But if you want to own one genuinely disruptive solar play, Enphase is the way to go. Its biggest weakness is that it's boring. But right now, that feels like a high-quality problem. Oh, but get this. It is wildly profitable. Okay? Number nine. Whoa. Lion's Dead. Moderna. Yeah, Moderna's a company that feels a lot like Zoom about 400 points ago. Now, Moderna made a ton of money during thanks to COVID. But in the end, they haven't done much with that cash, and they don't have a Pfizer pill. Maybe Moderna will start developing those personalized vaccines that were the focus here before the pandemic, including for cancer. I feel much better if the company used their vaccine proceeds to buy up a bunch of burnout biotechs and transform them into a big pharma name. And that's what I'm betting they'll do, because Moderna itself does not deserve on this sacred 10. And then finally, one that you may not be familiar with, I know because my daughter lived in Oregon. My daughter, who is, I think, who introduced me to this place with the idea that, Dad, I don't want you to sleep on Saturdays anymore. You need to be able to go Friday to Sunday because you don't get to see me much. Dutch Bros. Yeah, I'm always searching for retail or restaurant names that are popular in a particular region, Oregon, even as most people have never heard of them. I have no doubt that Dutch Bros, and some people call it bro, I don't mind that, the the Dutch Bros model of kiosks in parking lots is a winner. Unless it's Christmas, malls have way too much space and so little revenue coming from their parking lots. Along comes Dutch Bros with a booth in the parking lot where some of the best-tasting coffee can be had, served by surprisingly cheerful young people. People like their caffeine, but most coffees seem to want to hide what we need it for. Work, not Dutch Bros. They have the Annihilator. That's the best-tasting caffeine delivery system in the nation. Of course, this stock's been obliterated because it's a recent IPO. But if you buy the stock now, you're benefiting for all the prospective future stock buyers who haven't seen a Dutch Bros, let alone know that there's going to be another thousand of them added. Because we all want our caffeine to keep us awake and do better. The bottom line, I wish there were more stocks in the CNBC Millennial 50 list that I could endorse here, but the market's changed, and you have to change with it. You may have too many expensive stocks in your portfolio, including 600, 600 that came public in the last year, of which I would throw every one of them into the Love Canal, the Gowanus Canal, and that great waste management, uh, you know, they've got, waste management's got some unbelievable giant mountains of trash just on the other side of the Hudson. They're just great landfills, and you have all those pigeons that come down on you. That's what should happen to the 600. Pigeons should land on them. But now you have 10 that I like. However, I wouldn't pick more than two to actually own until the market gets more comfortable with growth names, which will happen if the shakeout ends, but not anytime soon. Yes. And by the way, before I did this piece, do you think I went to Dutch Bros? I just wish I had. You have no idea what it would have been like had I gone there. Stick with Kramer. Coming up, Kramer's got more than a token interest in making you money. Head off the charts for some crypto crib notes next. ask me the big theme of January so far, it's the total breakdown of all speculative assets. High-flying stocks that trade at multiples to sales, not earnings. These horrible SPAC names. Recent IPOs that are terrible. And the most speculative of them all, cryptocurrency. Bitcoin and Ethereum, the largest crypto plays, have been obliterated in the last few weeks, including today, before the bounce that you see 
on the screen. And despite all the hand-wringing about the Federal Reserve and Russia massing tanks on its border with Ukraine, I think the immense wealth destruction in this space has put tremendous downward pressure on the stock market, too. You've got a ton of people buying this stuff with borrowed money, and when the margin calls come in, they tend to sell something else in order to raise cash. In a multi-day sell-off like this one, people end up dumping their winners to pay for their losers, and it spreads across multiple asset classes. In other words, even if you don't care about crypto, the Bitcoin breakdown had bad, was bad news for the stock market. And if you're like me and you think it's a good idea to own some crypto, well, this decline has been especially vicious, really hard. So when will the pain end? Well, I don't know. Maybe this is the end. Today, I want to focus on Bitcoin and Ethereum because they're the most legitimate cryptocurrencies and crypto is at the heart of the speculative wind down, wind down. Unfortunately, this stuff is very hard to analyze because there's no earnings, no dividends, no fundamentals at all. We don't know how many shares, so to speak, are being issued. And that's why tonight we're going off the charts with the help of the legendary Tom DeMarc. He's the pioneering head of DeMarc Analytics with a storied history of timing the markets going back decades. Now, he has got a tremendous track record when it comes to spotting tops and bottoms, especially in crypto. So listen up. DeMarc's got a host of proprietary indicators that he uses to predict changes in a securities trajectory before they happen. You can find these in more detail at his website, which is called Symbolic. And the way that's spelled is S-Y-M-B-O-L-I-K. Take a look at the daily chart of Bitcoin from September of 2017 through October of 2020. Uh, these 13 show buy and sell patterns. They're, uh, they're actually trend exhaustion tops and trend exhaustion bottoms that were predicted using DeMarc's fantastic analysis. Now let's move up to the period from October of 2020 through the present. Once again, DeMarc's model predicted the Bitcoin peak in April, okay, uh, of last year, and it called the exact day, the exact day of the bottom, July 20th. You can learn something about the current meltdown by looking at the decline in Bitcoin from April to June of last year. OK, uh, this collapse was as severe as the 1929 stock market crash. We're talking something lo- losing more than half of its value in a matter of eight to ten weeks. Sometimes this kind of breakdown can cause structural damage to a given market, resulting in a labored recovery that might not erase more than 50 to 60 percent of the losses before the decline resumes all over again. However, Bitcoin was the exception. It quickly rebounded off its lows from last summer and snapped right back, hitting a new all-time high in the fall. Will you look at that? Nice comeback. After that extended rally, though, DeMarc's model turned negative again, this time in November. Another trend exhaustion top. Since then, we have seen a hideous meltdown in all things crypto. At this point, the latest Bitcoin sell-off is almost as bad as what we saw last spring. It's down roughly 50%, over 50 trading days. Once again, DeMarc says there's a possibility of long-term structural damage to the whole crypto space, which could translate into a feeble rebound whenever this thing stops going down. But DeMarc's betting that won't happen. Let's zoom in on the seven-day chart of Bitcoin. Remember, DeMarc has a 13-session countdown pattern that tells him when a rally or a decline is likely to exhaust itself. Right now, Bitcoin's currently at 11. Okay, the sell-off is 11 uh, on, the, on the buy countdown. We need two more negative closes before he buy, his buy trigger fires. Now, DeMarc also wants to see Bitcoin testing his downside price targets. It briefly broke down below his higher, tar- his higher target at 34495 earlier today before rebounding off its lows. However, if this rally proves to be short-lived, then DeMarc wouldn't be surprised to see Bitcoin getting hit with a two- or three-day panic-selling climax, which could take it all the way down to 26,355. Who wouldn't want to buy it there? To put this in historical perspective, during the last big meltdown from April of last year to late June, Bitcoin lost nearly 56% of its value. Take a look at this comparative chart. 
If we get a similar percentage size decline from this November highs here, then you'd expect Bitcoin to bottom at around 30,557. DeMarc also notes that Bitcoin's angle of descent last April. Got that? The degree of the decline is identical to its current angle of descent. In other words, there's a good chance that history continues to repeat itself. Keep that number in mind. Now, how about Ethereum, the number two currency, cryptocurrency and the one that I have a small position in? Take a look at the daily chart. Based on DeMarc's methodology, Ethereum had a 13-day sell countdown going right into its peak late last year. Okay. Uh, that told you the rally was exhausted. Now, though, Ethereum has already hit 13 on his buy countdown for the first time since the peak. That tells DeMarc that we could be looking at a trend exhaustion bottom right here. Of course, he's not just looking at his, continue, his countdown pattern. In order to get a sustainable bottom, DeMarc also needs to see something hit his downside price targets. But fortunately, Ethereum already broke down to his downside price projection at 2434. So I am incredibly interested in going back into this thing. In short, Ethereum's got all the ingredients for a trend exhaustion bottom, according to DeMarc's methodology. However, that doesn't mean it's necessarily done going down. If we get another panic breakdown, he could see Ethereum temporarily dipping to 1859 as selling comp- uh, climax. But that would be your moment to buy, not sell, into the teeth of the panic. The climax is also what I call the crescendo. So where do I come down? Look, because there's not much in the way of fundamentals when you're talking about cryptocurrency, these are digital tokens, not shares in a business. That means all we have to fall back on really are the technicals. And DeMarc and his team have proven themselves again and again to be the masters of crypto. They've had some very strong calls with Bitcoin and Ethereum. So the bottom line, when the charts is interpreted by Tom DeMarc, said that both Bitcoin and Ethereum could be looking at downside trend exhaustion bottoms this week, if not today, I think you need to take them seriously. To me, that says it might be too late to sell and you need to consider buying. I know I am, especially if we get a final leg down. Ted in Illinois, Ted. Jimmy Chill, big yeah. time, windy city, snowy booyahs, my man. Done. First, off, okay. first off, thank you very much for the many entertaining and intelligent years of helping us all understand the market just a little bit better with each and every show, my man. Thank you. Hey, Jim. Back in June, I purchased Coinbase as a safer, less costly play into the world of crypto. Understanding that the company makes money by allowing users to invest funds and trade crypto. And, Jim, there's two sides to trade, buying and selling. Yet it seems coin only moves up when crypto moves up, and that's on the buys. With all the recent crypto dumping, why hasn't Coinbase seen a move up on the selling transactions? I'm a little confused by this. I well, it's a good question. I think it's, it's probably at, not at nearly as good. I, you, I don't think it's not nearly as good as proxy as people think. Um, I think there are the real issues with the company. Uh, I don't like the way that they approach the regulators. We had uh, Gary Gensler on last week, the chairman of the SEC. Uh, I think they should have gone to the SEC very quietly and said, here's the things that we're doing, um, as opposed to coming on air and saying, here's what he should be doing. And I think that they destroyed their own proxy value by being quite belligerent, if you want to know the truth. Okay. Tonight's chartist thinks Bitcoin and Ethereum could be looking at downside trend exhaustion bottoms. I like this. That means it could be too late to sell. Consider buying. All right, much more mad money. From trains to cargo ships, the supply chain disruptions continue. I'm discussing when the pain could come to an end with a private player working to manage the fallout. Then, there were a lot of headlines out of Russia this weekend, and I'm breaking them down to what you need to know. And all your calls rapid fire tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer.
time of day when the stock market got pulverized from the get-go, and a lot of it was the usual supply chain issues, then turn around and finish the session in the black, it's worth thinking about what could go right. I'm tired of thinking about what could go wrong. The recent sell-off is all about how the Federal Reserve might need to aggressively raise interest rates and to stamp out rampant inflation. But what if we had another way to cool down inflation? One of the biggest contributors to rising prices is the supply chain crisis. It's a crisis that resulted in soaring transportation costs. And when it comes to supply chain solutions, we like to check in with Flexport, the privately held software company that uses data analytics to help its clients make smarter logistics decisions. So are we in for another year of supply chain chaos, or is there some light at the end of the tunnel? Let's check in with Ryan Peterson. He's got it right the whole way. He's the founder and CEO of Flexport to get a better sense of the supply chain situation. Mr. Peterson, welcome back to Mad Money. And are things any better than when we spoke to you last? Booyah, Jim. And I'm sorry to say that, no, they are not any better than the last time we spoke, which I believe was sort of Q3 of last year. But anything, delays have gotten longer. Prices are kind of flat, but they're flat at really high levels, which nobody's happy with. But theoretically, if the secretary of transportation sat down with you or taken one of those boat rides, I don't know if he did that with you, he would have realized that, you know what, maybe we need even the National Guard to come in here and do some things. I, I don't know exactly what I would do if I was in his shoes. It's not, it's not like the government runs all of our supply chains and is in charge of everything. And I think we're, we're lucky for that, that we live in a free enterprise society. But uh, yeah, we're certainly at a time where markets seem to be breaking down with the supply chain. And so maybe, maybe there is a role for government intervention, but I'm not, it's not exactly clear what I would do in his shoes. But you know, when I read it, I mean, I, I, look, I happen to be, there's a great mercantile uh, country, the Dutch. And when I read your interview, I say, hey, listen, if the Dutch could do it, we could do it. What are they doing right in these other democracies that we can't do? You know, I, I, I think there is something there. Like our, in the United States, we have right now a big problem with the ports is we have unions and employers that can't quite agree. They have a contract negotiation coming up on July 1st of next year. And when they can't see eye to eye on things like automation and building technology that's going to enable our ports to run more efficiently. Today, American ports run at a lower productivity level than those of Mombasa, Kenya. So we're not in a great place. The Dutch have got famously strong labor protections and social safety net, and yet they've somehow managed to come down, sit down with the union and negotiate. The port of Rotterdam has been fully automated for over 20 years. So it is possible, even in a society with really strong labor protections, but, hey, it's, it's not easy to just wholesale copy whatever it is that they're doing that works and bring it here. I, I, I wish it was that easy. And you know what discourages me? I was hoping that we could talk about reshoring, but you're very clear that it's just not going to really help. And I wanted to talk about how return on equity was benefited from the way they did things. But it was obviously that our company skimped. And what's really true is that it's just not a national priority. And yet when I look at the number of ships and containers you're talking about, it's probably one of the most important ways to stop inflation. Absolutely. I mean, we need good infrastructure, no matter what side you sit on the political spectrum. I think everybody can agree we need to have good infrastructure so our companies can do business globally. We have the best companies in the world. We should make it really easy for them to reach their customers anywhere in the world. And, and technology has to be a big part of that story, whether we're talking about big robots at the ports or really great technology like Flexport brings to give people visibility and control over their freight, some sense of predictability so they can plan. One of my big concerns right now for all the brands out there is they overorder. They order too much stuff that people didn't want, and then they're stuck with too much inventory, where for the last year the story has been not enough inventory. 
these are really hard problems. Technology can play a big role in making those decisions. Yeah, and I know the retailers all went down because people feel it's going to start coming in and hurt them. Now, let me one last question. OK, let's say I'm the mayor of uh, a, a town in Oregon and I can get a big dredging contract and I can get all this new stuff. Can the, can the beast change? Can we come up with a new port? It's so interesting right now to watch this because the port of Long Beach, we're seeing long delays, like 20 days longer than normal with ships waiting offshore at Long Beach, Los Angeles, which is the biggest port complex in the United States. The port of Oakland, which is one day sailing to the north. In fact, it's closer if you're coming from China. You come down from the north. It only has five or six days delays. And yet companies continue to shift everything through Long Beach. And there's something about human beings that we're creatures of pattern and habit. And we just keep doing the thing we're doing. So I'm not sure like that a new port up in Oregon or somewhere else on the West Coast would get business because for some reason there's already less de- less delays at these other ports and brands and companies just keep shipping through Long Beach. Uh, well, it's, it's, you know, maybe I don't you, have an you can shoot me an email about the knuckleheads that keep going there and we can talk about them and see if they like being talked about on air. Maybe they'll find that the best way to do is to go to Oakland and not be embarrassed at the supermarket. So anyway, look, you are a delight to come on. You've been right the whole way. I wish you weren't. Every time I wish you weren't right. But darn it, you are Ryan Peterson, CEO of Flexport, who understands the game. And it is always a joy to see you, sir. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you. Hey, look, I'm not saying it's not rocket science. This actually is from rocket science. But we got one. He knows what he's doing. Hey, I'm going to Oakland. We're doing our show from Oakland. We have money's back here for the break. Coming up next. Let's make money together. What do we got? Kramer's bringing the thunder and answering your burning questions in today's edition of The Lightning Round. Before we start tonight's lightning round, I want to highlight tonight's CBC special report. Scott Wapner and I will be breaking down today's wild ride. And, of course, I'm looking for opportunities to help you manage your portfolio tonight at 8 p.m. on CBC. And it is now time for the lightning And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Let's start with Neil in New Jersey. Neil. Hey, what's up, Jim? Big Blue Yacht coming to you from New Jersey. Okay. I um, like that. Just want to – I watch your show every night and I value all your insight in the market. Give me a call tonight what your thoughts are on EQRX. Okay. Earlier in the show, I talked about what – well, what certain companies have to do is they have to buy biotech companies. And this is the kind of company that needs to be bought. It shouldn't be independent. Ernie in Illinois. Ernie. Hey, Dr. Kramer, how are you? Thanks for everything you do. Well, thank you, Dr. Pepper and Dr. Kramer, accredited from the same school. How can I help? So I have a huge decision in DigitalOcean, D-O-C-N. I've been following it since the IPO came out. I bought it at 76, 80, and 117. Now it's in a world of pain. What should I do? Well, cry me a river for that DigitalOcean. It sells at 190 times earnings. I'm not recommending anything that's north of 50 times earnings. That's just my new rule, discipline to get me through this tough time. Ed in Texas, Ed! Oh, yeah, Jim. Uh, Member of your investment club. Thank you. Uh, Tell me about Occidental Petroleum, OXY. It's the only oil stock that I don't like here. Let's go to Joe in New Jersey. Joe! Hey, Jim. I wanted to ask your opinion about Q Health, H-L-T-H. They have a COVID test on the market right now that produces PCR results in 20 minutes. 
Uh, they had an IPO in September. It's already being used by the NBA, Google, Air Canada. I started buying at 14, kept buying all the way down to 950. But in the past two weeks, it's kept sinking, and it's down almost 50 percent. We got too many tests. Started. What can I say? Even the best that have tests are getting uh, are getting are crumbling here. So that one has to crumble right along with it. Let's go to Robert in Virginia. Robert. Hey, Mr. Kramer, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. How about you? Good. Um, hey, I got this stock a while ago, and it was like down to 40. I've been nibbling on the downturns ever since. I got rid of half of it last Friday, and I want to know if I should keep nibbling at it or should I diversify it. ABT. No, there's nothing there in ADT. That, that should never have come public. That was another one of those where they just gotcha. I mean, I wonder if they'd be laughing. Now, oh, and that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round! The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Coming up, to make money in this market, you've got to master the business section and what's above the fold. Kramer goes around the world to get a grip on the geopolitics driving Wall Street's action. Next. Take control of your financial future with the new madmoney.cnbc.com. Kramer's exclusive CEO interviews, full episodes, analysis, even your own soundboard. Plus special access to Mad Money 101 with rules and techniques to break down the market for all investors. The red flag that makes me drop a stock immediately is... It's everything you need right when you need it. The new madmoney.cnbc.com. At a time when a lot of people are freaking out about this Russian military buildup along the Ukrainian border, let me ask an impolitic question. Does Ukraine belong in Russia's sphere of influence? Now, if you start with that question, it puts a whole new spin on what's happening in this hotspot that we're told is the new line in the sand against Russia. Look, I am no fan of Vladimir Putin. He's an autocrat. He's a kleptocrat. But it's not like Ukraine is the same as Poland or Bulgaria or any of the other former Warsaw Pact states. Ukraine was actually part of the Soviet Union. Arguably, it's only a separate country because Stalin wanted an extra seat at the U.N. Of course, Ukraine had a bitter history with the Soviet Union, but it's only been separated from Russia for the last 30 odd years. I think they deserve to determine their own destiny. Unfortunately, I don't have any tank divisions. So what I say doesn't matter. So I understand why Putin is so adamant that Ukraine never joined NATO, even as it seems that the Biden administration has opened the idea. NATO exists to contain Russia. Of course, they don't want the breadbasket of the old Soviet Union to join the organization. Again, I'm not at all sympathetic to the Russian government, but it seems like overreach to assume that we here in the United States can dictate whether Ukraine remains independent. Again, don't get me wrong. I'd love it if we could just tell Russia to back off like we did when the wall fell. But we now have no more ability to stop a Russian takeover of Ukraine than we could stop the Russian takeover of Crimea eight years ago. Unless we wanted to start a nuclear war, and we don't, then Russia's going to do whatever it wants, the same way our government does pretty much whatever it wants in Central America. Monroe Doctrine, meet Putin Doctrine. But there are two other reasons why I expect the current Ukraine intentions won't turn into a hot war, at least not a hot war between NATO and Russia. One is that Ukraine, as it now stands, is basically a failed state propped up by the International, International Monetary Fund. Then there's reason number two. Russia is a giant petro state with Germany as its principal client. That means Germany can't really afford to get too hostile or else they'll have a severe energy shortage. That means the most important country in Europe may side with its old foe, Russia. Now, it's an understatement to say that former President Trump created divisions in NATO that have rendered it dysfunctional. But that's nothing compared to Germany's reliance on Russian oil and gas. 
Plus, the Germans have been leading the world in decommissioning nuclear plants. They also are trying to close all their 83 coal plants. I guess they didn't think too far ahead because that leaves Germany totally at the mercy of Russia's natural gas pipelines. With these closures, Russia could end up providing half of Germany's energy in the form of natural gas. Obviously, that gets cut off immediately if the Germans actually send troops to Ukraine. Historically, not a great move for them anyway. Which brings us back to who owns Ukraine. In a just world, obviously, it belongs to Ukrainians. What the heck? They live there. They have shed blood, sweat, tears, and more blood trying to be independent. But when we're talking in terms of geopolitics, small countries get pushed around by regional superpowers. More, more t- morality doesn't come into it. If you're the Germans, you might agree to a deal where Russia doesn't invade and NATO commits not to expand into Ukraine. Maybe that's enough for Putin. Maybe it's not, and he wants to install a whole new loyal puppet regime. He can do that. But no matter what Russia does, nobody in Western Europe seems to want a war, even if the United States might like one. Therefore, you know what we have to do? We have to figure out this is the first big geopolitical test of the Biden administration and start thinking about stocks within that context. To me, it's twofold. If you had a worst-case situation, like when Iraq invaded Kuwait in 1990, you had multiple weeks where oil prices exploded higher. Russia also a petrostate, and there are plenty of oil stocks that I think are worth owning right now. Second, you can buy the consumer staples or the drug companies. We did some of that for uh, the Travel Trust today. Because they won't be hurt even if the Ukraine situation spirals out of control. And you can get the stocks at a discount because the futures are dragging down everything. And there you can think Procter & Gamble. J&J reports tomorrow, but it'll be good. Third, you can buy a defense contractor like Raytheon Technologies, reports tomorrow, or Lockheed Martin. Go to names whenever you read a story about our government sending Ukraine lethal aid. All-time great euphemism, isn't it? I wish I could tell you to buy some tech into this weakness uh, because of this, but there are 600 new companies that have come public in the last year, the majority of them in tech or biotech, and that oversupply makes it difficult for any of the newer stocks to bounce, although the older ones are already doing so. At lower levels, we'll have more ideas, but you need to start somewhere, and for now, that means the oils, the consumer staples, and defense contractors. Ukraine, it should belong to Ukraine, but I don't make the rules. I'd like to say there's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to try to find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. The news with Shepard Smith starts now. Now. 